You're listening to FundFlow, a podcast for emerging managers, offering insights into the journey of new and aspiring fund managers seeking to have access in a crowded market. Tune in as McGuire Woods partner and host, John Finger, is joined by guests ranging from first-time fund managers to proven emerging managers, experienced LPs poised to back emerging managers, and other key participants in the emerging manager ecosystem. Hear their real-world perspectives and gain actionable tips to help inform your strategy and position yourself for a successful fund closing. Welcome to FundFlow, a McGuire Woods podcast for emerging managers. Today's guest is Suzanne Yoon, who's the founder and managing partner of Kinsey Capital Partners in Chicago. Suzanne has nearly 25 years of experience investing in and advising middle market companies. Suzanne was named by Mergers and Acquisitions as one of the most influential women in mid-market M&A in 2020, 2021, and 2022 And the Wall Street Journal recognized her as a top female dealmaker, shaping private equity's present and future. Welcome to FunFlow, Suzanne. Thank you, John. And uh, thank you for that very kind introduction. (laughs) It's all the truth, so it's very easy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Super excited to have you on here. And and I know everyone's going to appreciate hearing your insights. Maybe talk a little bit about your history in investing and and how that ultimately led to you starting Kinsey Capital Partners about five years ago. So I, like many people who ended up in private equity and in some ways ended up in private equity on, on accident. For me, you know, I started my career in banking um, with a bank called Avian Amro that owned uh, LaSalle Bank, which was one of the largest middle market banks in the country here out of Chicago and um, did rotations and then ultimately ended up in a group after uh, doing various rotations in the special assets group, which was really essentially the um, area of the bank where when banks could hold off-balance sheet private equity assets, that's where they were held. So that was really my first exposure to private equity was in that group. And many of the deals that were held in that group were companies that had started out with investments uh, where ABN or LaSalle had started out with investments in debt, but had converted to equity over time. And so that's really what launched my interest in middle market private equity and middle market um, investing. And then, you know, I did a couple years at Ernst & Young in their corporate restructuring advisory group and their investment bank doing large global public and enterprise level companies and ended up deciding I really wanted to be back in the middle market and went back to um, ABN and LaSalle Bank to help start up their you know structured equity and financing group. And then um, eventually um, ended up in New York and you know after the market crashed, really decided that I wanted to be somewhere with more long-term locked up capital and ended up joining a private equity firm in the East Coast and then eventually ended up moving back to Chicago with that firm while I was leading transaction development for the firm. And while I was, you know, after I moved back, I just saw a lot of opportunity in the lower middle market and specifically around companies that really needed technology and technology improvements to scale. 
And that's how we started Kinsey Capital. Interesting. As you went through that process with Kinsey Capital and now towards today, what were some of the markers, both internal and then also in broader private equity, that made you feel like it was time to to raise a committed fund? So I think I always thought we would eventually raise a committed fund. And so some of the challenges, maybe I'll just take a step back and tell you about the, the challenges of spinning, you know, or splitting off from an established fund on the East Coast was I was the only person in Chicago. And I really knew I wanted to be in Chicago with a team in Chicago and build a firm with a culture that I could be proud of. And that meant I really had to build a team essentially from scratch um, because I wasn't going to, we were, you know, most of my partners and colleagues were all on the East Coast. So I knew that I always wanted to do that. And then it was really about how was I going to build a team track record and a track record for Kinsey itself with a slightly different investment strategy. And so I had to start off slow. So we did some independent deals. And then once we established the team and the strategy and and I was able to recruit an, you know, a partner, an operating partner. And then in addition to that, some um, team members went out to raise our first fund. And then, you know, I, I think since then have had really early success. Sure. You mentioned it. And I think it's something that people spend a lot of time trying to figure out and doing their best to effectuate. But Talk to me a little bit about that team building. What what were some of the things you were looking for? And you know, clearly you were you were intentional about about building that team. How were you thinking about that in the in the sense of getting from point A to point B? Well, first I I thought really about the market and what I was trying to accomplish um, with Kinsey. And you know, I I really believe that there was an opportunity, you know, in the lower middle market to create a differentiated firm and, and have the right types of people. And I would say we're usually the first time or second time institutional investor into a company. What that really requires is a lot of heavy lifting to professionalize a firm or, you know, to implement technology and the right operational improvements. And so when I started to think about the team, I really had to start and dig deep and look at my strengths and weaknesses and understand where I need to fill my weaknesses to start, which was operating experience. And I do believe in diversity, not just from the standpoint of gender and race and you know economic and social, but really experience. And so as we went out to build the team, what I knew I needed and I started with um, in recruiting my partner was a head of portfolio operations and someone who had really deep technology expertise and had success in transforming businesses. So that's really where I started and then went out to build our investment team slowly. Um, I have three members on our team that started with me essentially as consultants or interns and have now grown into key members of the team over the last five years. It's fun to think about because I remember the day I, you know, officially, I guess, started Kinsey, it was me, a part-time operating partner and, and two undergraduate interns. Mm-hmm. And today we have a 13-person team. 
and growing. That's fantastic. And I guess one ancillary question to that, because you started building this team pre-COVID and then ultimately had the pleasure of building it through COVID. How was that experience altered during your journey with the onset of COVID? And, And maybe how did you overcome some of those challenges? That is a great question where I was really fortunate that I at least had my first five or six, you know, people pre-COVID and we were all really committed to the business. And we actually had our first platform acquisition done and our first fund. Um, We were in the process of closing our second platform acquisition when COVID hit. And although that it didn't go exactly as planned, we did end up eventually closing that deal as well. And so we had to continue to add bodies and team members. And so what we did even throughout COVID was continue to recruit. So we had uh, not during 2020, 2020, but we continued to manage our internship process and internship program at Kinsey. And we have very good relationships with the universities in Chicago. So we went to virtual internships as well. Mm-hmm. And actually, one of those interns ended up you know, joining us full-time in July of 2021. So two, actually, two of those interns. And then along the way, continued to interview and interview and build our team. So in the last year and a half, we doubled the size of our team. Wow. Which is very unique given it was in the middle of COVID. <laughs> but um, And we did that by being flexible, open-minded. And interestingly, almost every single person on our team is in the office full-time. Wow. That is impressive. And particularly knowing how things are in Chicago, I know it's not been the easiest um, through COVID to, to navigate through that. So that's fantastic. As it relates to whether it was building the team or doing LP or management presentations, really all of the above, what's your perspective on how what we've learned from COVID and the things you've started doing remote? What lasting changes do you see or or maybe not see in the way of getting back to how things were before? So I do think nothing replaces live human interaction particularly with management meetings or LP and um, actually and LP meetings. With that said, I think there has been, for us, I've seen an acceleration or I guess an acceleration in our ability to meet people, at least initially virtually. It actually allows for more meetings. So I I actually think it's going to improve. There was a decline in productivity during COVID. I think the whole world felt that. And I think we're going to see post-COVID in a, a significant increase in productivity if you go back, if you go to a hybrid type model relative to pre-COVID because of the ability to do virtual meetings and the comfort and you know second nature of that today relative to what it used to be. And I also am hopeful that people are not sick as often because they're not forced to come to the office <laughs> when they're not feeling well. And that's just a role that we have in our office, even though everyone, I think, tends to want to be in the office because I I do think private equity is a a bit of a team sport. But what we've seen is when people are not feeling well, even slightly, they'll stay home and we're, we're all fine. 
doing hybrid meetings. Definitely. So you touched on the the team building, but how are you and your partner intentional about building the right credentials that would ultimately lead to closing on a committed fund, right? So whether that was deal side, et cetera, maybe talk a little bit about how you strategically went down that path. I think we started with really what our investment thesis is. And we do require, I mentioned this, operational experience and really value that. And so we really started with making sure that we had the right investment team in place, bringing in people who maybe did not have necessarily traditional private equity experience, but knowing that we were going to have to invest in and train them, um, but really, really value consulting and operational experience like pre-business school as an example. So we have a nice balance on our team between individuals and professionals who have been trained professionally as investors relative to operators. But we also really value when people are able to roll up their sleeves and and really dig into a company. And so we spend a lot of time on human capital assessment, development, thinking about the right mix of our team. I think it will continue to grow in, and develop over the years. But we actually just made our first offer um, to our first full-time post-MBA portfolio ops professional outside of my partner, David. So I'm anxiously awaiting to hear if he's accepting or not. I think he will. So That's great. And, and how about on the deal side? How much thought you know, went into some of those deals you were doing as an independent sponsor around what that you know, would ultimately look like throughout the underwriting process from LPs diligencing? a committed fund. How are you thinking about that? So it's almost like everything, right? It has to really hit down the middle of what you are out fundraising for when you go out to fundraise. So for us, the first few deals were really important, um, not unlike all of our other deals, but just to make sure that we were setting the tone properly for the future of Kinsey. And being able to show, because what, what LPs, I think, generally want to see, right, is consistency and also be able to answer the question, like, what is a Kinsey deal? So they have to be within, we knew they had to be within, like, the strike zone, everything that we did in terms of, and the benefit we had with the companies that we acquired early on is to be able to use those companies and the work that we did to really develop our playbook and be able to show that for the funds in the future. You've touched on it, the vision and the strategy articulated previously around advancing the use of technology, data analytics, and innovation to help companies unlock value. Talk a little bit about where that came from and ultimately how that has permeated into the broader strategy for Kinsey. Sure. I'll start with where it came from. Where it came from was really solving a problem. I, at my previous firm, which was, um, I, you know, I worked with some really, really smart people. We had a very strong operating bench, but where I felt that we were constantly running into problems, and by the way, this is going back to 2010, 11, 12, right? Everybody has just learned how to use an iPhone. It was like seeing color for the first time for all of us old people. And 
understanding like just the speed at which technology was moving and how we were going to integrate that into the companies that we were underwriting and acquiring. And I would say in 2012, it probably was not as obvious as it is today. But the reality was if everybody, I think, started to feel the pressure of, and this is executives that I was working with and um, you know, in the management meetings I would go to, the pressure of technology. Some people would say, oh, well, we don't need to change it. Others would say, yeah, I, I think it's coming. But by the way, like I have no idea how to resource for the problem, like solutions that I think I need, or, um, yeah, it seems important, but I don't even know where to start. Right. I'm really good at operating my business. I really understand my industry. I don't really know how to implement the right data analytics or ERP, you know, system to make sure that I can continue to scale. And so for me, it was, really solving a problem because I couldn't really get my head around how to solve that problem without bringing in the right experts. And so, you know, even today, I think we've always, because of that, I always leaned into technology instead of, I I, I tend to find myself when things are uncomfortable. I know that probably is an indicator for me that I need to lean into it a little bit more and learn or try to figure it out. And that's really where the prioritization of the use of technology started, you know, for me. Is your sense and belief that that problem is truly magnified with lower middle market companies versus mid market companies or what's your perspective there? So the answer is absolutely yes, because technology implementations today are increasingly important right? Everybody talks about it, again, less obvious 10 years ago than it is today. But lower middle market companies in general are at a significant disadvantage because the access that they have on their own. So imagine you are a 10 million EBITDA company or even a $5 million EBITDA company. You aren't going to have access or be able to afford the companies that are really good at technology implementations like Deloitte and Accenture and sure. McKinsey, right? You just won't have access to that enterprise level um, technology firms. And if you think about what large public companies are focused on, they're focused on autonomous technology and machine learning and data mining. I would say in the lower middle market, the lower middle market is still trying to catch up with independent systems and mobile and e-commerce and digital experience. They haven't even gotten to, they've barely, you know, started to think about like integrated systems and analytics and reporting and cloud-based systems. I mean, we see so many lower middle market companies that have not even thought about going to cloud yet because they don't know how. That is definitely scary, but uh, great, great opportunity for, for sure. Let's talk more about the fundraising process. What were the most important considerations for you when selecting LPs that you really wanted to have a partnership with? One, the market is incredibly competitive. And I had a very realistic view of fundraising in that, you know, I tell my team this all the time, we are competing with every other fund that's out there, small and big, right? So identifying investors 
that we're going to be long-term partners were, was really important to us. And also given the size of our firm and not having the large back office that we do, uh, that some of the larger firms do, and really having firms that understand kind of lower middle market and I would say sub-billion dollar funds was really important to us as well. Going through the process, what were some of the most common reasons that LPs were hesitant to invest into a, a first-time fund? I think just generally, and I, I say this too because I also sit on investment committees for uh, not-for-profit organizations, and first-time funds, um, one of the biggest risks, I mean, they, they're risky because the teams are young and new. So I think from an LP's perspective and what I see um, although this hasn't necessarily been the case for us, is the risk around a first-time team and whether or not a team will stay together, whether or not they uh, a first-time fund has the ability to actually manage a fund and grow a team, you know, a first-time fund manager like myself. Those are a lot of the types of questions that come up. And then also just whether or not the infrastructure is there to support investors on an operational basis. And as you grow, and now private equity being regulated by the SEC, that also requires another level of compliance. And so the back office also has to be strong to be able to scale as a fund manager. During that process for Kinsey, how did you go about addressing some of the concerns you were hearing from prospective LPs? So I think I... I've always known that first-time teams are risky. So being an independent or pseudo-independent sponsor, building that team track record, showing that we've been together, you know, was really important for us. I think the other is um, making sure that we could support the reporting requirements, the, you know, compliance requirements of being a, you know, institutional fund is was also really important for us. So investing into the firm and making sure that we had the right people in place was uh, was probably the most critical thing that I would say that you know that I'd ha- I had to do. I think the the last piece of that is also being able to prove to the market or show the market that I could also manage a team um, versus you know just having been a deal person prior. And, you know, looking at just deals and and that transition from being just doing deals or a deal lead to actually leading a firm. That makes sense. So taking that a step further with emerging manager programs on the rise over the past however many years, what do you foresee for the future of the landscape as it relates to LP's willingness to invest with emerging managers? I think it's a really exciting time for LPs. I do think, you know, as firms mature and you have teams that are spinning out from larger organizations um, and also just different investment ideas coming up and and the investment world is just, I, I think being a good investor, you really have to be fluid and think ahead and we're all seeking alpha. And so 
just looking for like unique ideas. Um, I, I think that the creativity that comes out of the investment industry is is really interesting. I so I, I do think it's gonna it's gonna continue. I think investors are also recognizing that even if they weren't interested in emerging managers before, they really are at least following emerging managers or looking, you know, looking to start programs um, or have started programs because of the all these new firms that are starting. And nobody wants to miss out on a good deal. Right? <laughs> For sure, the next big thing, right? Yes, exactly. So I mentioned at the outset, you and, and the firm have been given lots of recognition, rightfully so, for your accomplishments as a female founder, including, I know, P. when you were uh, recognized as North American female-founded firm of the year. And at the same time, you know, we continue to see reports that um, diverse funds uh, are systematically underallocated by institutional investors. What are some of the challenges, whether fundraising or otherwise, that you face being a woman in the field? And how did you overcome them? I might just go back to like early career. Um, I'm going back to the mid-90s. And just my um, as I was growing up in the industry, um, I really did not, there were really no, I, I didn't really see a lot of women in the industry. Um, sure. It wasn't until I was more senior that I started to meet kind of other women who were at other funds or LPs that were the only woman in their group too, right? And so that in itself um was, I guess, you know, an obstacle. But at the same time, I think you just put blinders on and you go because um, I think I've always loved my job. And, you know, in finding and finding, you know, a network of people who have maybe, you know, been in the same situations I have or have gone through the same things. And what makes me unique, I think, too, is that I'm, I'm not, you know, just that I'm a female, um, a female manager, but I'm also a mother, right? I, um, I'm a wife and, and there are a little bit of like nuances to that. And I think you get, you get over those things because I have just plowed through, I guess. And the, but the reality is there are unconscious biases out there, whether people think they have them or not. I think that's why, you know, diverse teams, um, are very important. And to show that, you know, at, at some point, I, I think a lot about other managers um, that have overcome these obstacles. And, you know, we will, my goal is always to outperform the market um, so that one day, you know, people aren't saying, oh, it's a female manager. We're just a good manager. Absolutely. What changes do you hope to see within the emerging manager ecosystem, whether it's, you know, that segment or just private equity, broadly speaking, what changes do you hope to see in the coming years, particularly around minority-led GPs? So I'm part of a group called the Private Equity Women's Investor Network. And one of the programs that they have launched is called Pink Light. 
And Pink Light was um, the genesis of Pink Light was the name. Of, I'm sorry, the genesis of the name of Pink Light really came from the idea of green lighting movies. I don't know if you know sure. um, what that means, but yeah. And the idea was, you know, we've always, as an organization, really promoted women and and tried to make sure that women had a senior women in the industry had a network um, where they could they would be feel supported. And they decided, I think just PEWIN also um, realized that it was also important to support female founders and not just at the institutions, but also um, founders themselves. And so I, I do think, you know, as you have these organizations and emerging manager programs and people feel that they really have a chance at going out on their own and going out to raise funds and, and candidly, the emerging manager programs, some of them are, it's, it's, they're not necessarily for diverse managers, but allowing people to spin out from their existing funds or other careers to, to try um, that route in raising their own funds. Um, I think the emerging manager programs are hugely, um, you know, critical to that. In thinking about strategy around that and implementation, how early do you see some of these efforts around really just educating young women, even beyond business, uh, before business school, to really understand and appreciate the opportunities that are out there. I guess whether it's PE Win or your own perspectives, do you see that happening? You know, high school college, what are some of the strategies that you think are going to be uh, successful? Well, I think just general STEM programs and, you know, starting with um, encouraging, you know, women and young women in high school, um, even in junior high into STEM and, you know, math um, and sciences is, is really important. There are several organizations today that really try um, to support, like Girls Who Invest is a great example of an, uh, of an organization that really try to support um, educating women in college about the investment career. And then the Women's Association of Venture and Equity has just started a career forum, again, to teach women um, both in you know, and to give access to, I'm sorry, both in, um, at college, um, and university level, as well as MBAs, um, to give them access to all of the major, you know, any really private equity firm or investment firm that wants to be involved in that. And so that's also been a, a recent, um, development, but that career forum has, um, had huge success. And so there, there are lots of different forums now that are coming up. Interestingly, you know, I also think media is really important in that. And I, I just want to tell you my, my own story. My, my, my first exposure to the concept of private equity was really movies in the 80s, huh. right? It was Pretty Woman and Wall Street. Sure. And I had no idea. And it's funny to think back to that because I'm like, oh, I was so intrigued by Richard Gere's job in Pretty Woman. 
And I'm like, that's what it was. So I think media has a huge, you know, we have a huge opportunity um, to in, in, encourage, you know, young women to do and look into industries that maybe were not, they, they, were, they didn't have exposure to before. That's great. Great, great insight. Um, so recognizing the complexities, competitiveness in the environment, everything that goes into making uh, it challenging to raise a first-time fund, what were some teachable moments along the way that you look back on and can share with us? Well, I, um, God, I have so many, <laughs> but I, I might start with just, I had great mentors and friends and advisors in the industry that had a lot of experience with raising funds or being part of selecting funds. And again, through my PE Win network and other networks, I had a lot of people also prepare me for how hard it was going to be, but also really encouraged me um, to, to try. And um, I think, you know, listening and, you know, taking the advice, even when an LP tells you something that you don't want to hear, but really heeding to the, you know, the advice or maybe why they declined even um, and taking that into account was really important for us. I would say just generally for me, something unexpected and something I've learned um, having started a firm from scratch is that you almost have to be prepared for everything and anything. And um, being the founder and managing partner also means you're the head janitor and the head of IT and the head of human resources. And, you know, it's really all on you. And so um, at the end of the day, so you just have to be, I think, prepared for that. And there's a lot of mistakes along the way. I think human capital mistakes are the most um, critical, you know, and, and you learn from them, which is one of the reasons why we spend so much time today on assessments and interview processes and making sure that, you know, people who um, are hired at Kinsey really fit our culture. That's probably the big one, too, for me is um, learning is that you have to really establish, you know, what your core values and culture is going to be, because it, it's a big um, factor in terms of who you recruit. Sure. And then, of course, right, how you maintain that culture through yes. the, the time period we've gone through, which, you know, you alluded to it. And and I think it is it's absolutely fair that fund managers like yourself, it's easy to go through COVID like we all have. And, you know, woe is me. Right. And it, I, I was raising a fund at the worst time and all that. But I tell you, I know looking back on it 10 years from now, it's it's going to be the greatest thing that happened to a lot of fund managers because it's it's going to strengthen and it's tested and um, everyone's going to, not everyone, but most people are going to be the best for it when they come out of it. So, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a test of, I mean, it was essentially crisis management, right? Every day, the first three months of COVID and then probably the next two years. <laughs> after that um, in increments and dealing with a market that has been really volatile. Um, and then even coming out of COVID, you know, what I feel like as we're, we're coming out of COVID now dealing with supply chain and geopolitical issues, but that is the life of a fund manager. 
Yeah. You know, where there, it's constant change and just being able to, you know, be flexible enough and open-minded and available. I think you just, you have to be on all the time. Yeah. It, the, the days of just up and to the right steady state are, are past. So I totally agree with that. Circling back, um, particularly as it relates to women and minorities within private equity and specifically emerging managers, what, what piece of advice would you give to a minority emerging manager? I mean, I, I this is just advice I would give everybody. Sure. Um, and it's just that at the end of the day, the people that you are you surround yourself with really matter. And the meaningful relationships you build over your career um, are the biggest asset you're going to have as you go out to raise a fund, if that is your ultimate goal. And then I think you always have to remain open, you know, to learning from people around you. That's great. That's great. And and how about one last question, Suzanne, as it relates to LPs, because certainly this, while while focused on emerging managers, this podcast uh, picks up listeners from from all over, including on the LP side. So what what advice would you give to limited partners um, who are looking to engage with emerging managers? What I would love to see from LPs more consistently, because it is you can imagine the amount of time it takes to do LP meetings while right, running a firm, doing deals. And all the things that we talked about today, John, is, you know, if we could get really succinct, qualified no's, that is so much better than a maybe. And a quick no is is always better than a maybe. But the qualified no is also really helpful because we're all, I, I think I'm in this particularly um, for, for the long run and want to be an institutional firm. And so if we can get a no and the reasons why and, and be able to take that and, and work with that for the future, um, that's always really helpful. Um, what is painful is when we hear nothing for an extended period of time or chasing and chasing, that gets very difficult um, for any firm from a time perspective. Excellent. Well, Thanks to our guest, Suzanne Yoon, for coming on the podcast today. Really appreciate your time and insights. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of FunFlow. And we hope you join us next time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of FunFlow. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host John Finger at jfinger at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action. 